Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. It's time to go against the grain for the next couple of hours, and we do have a lot to talk about today. We're talking about bird flu, yeah. which I've been kind of hoping and dreading to get into uh, in some detail, so right. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, we have well, probably a pivotal moment in the war in Ukraine as, uh, you know, the Azovstal mm-hmm. steel plant is evacuating, and uh, it seems to be acknowledged that Mariupol is in Russian control or will be completely very, very soon. So what that means for the rest of the war, we will discuss. We are also going to talk about campaign finance in the United States. And, you know, maybe it's about to get even shadier. We're going to talk about who's afraid of the Palestinian flag. Right. We're going to get into all of the primaries today and whether John Fetterman's stroke. Poor John Fetterman. Yeah. Bad timing. I mean, also, that's a little bit glib, right? I wish him, you know, I I wish him the best. I do, too. And I mentioned to have a stroke like. Of all times. Two days before the primary. Of all times to have a stroke. And Josh Shapiro, the the likely Democratic nominee for governor, um, announced this morning that he's positive for COVID. Okay. Yeah. Uh, John Fetterman released a video from the hospital over the weekend that I think was meant to uh, put people's minds at ease. And to me, it had the opposite effect. Because he said he feels fine. He was he was feeling sick. And on Friday, he told his wife that he didn't feel well. She insisted that he go to the hospital. He resisted. She demanded. He finally went to the hospital. He had a stroke. And he said, but it it's okay. All it was was a blood clot dislodged from his heart and went to his brain. And I thought, don't explain. Don't, yeah, don't explain it's it. It's bad enough. It man. makes it sound worse. Just yeah, yeah. That is that is pretty <laughs> funny. And of course, uh, right now, Joe Biden uh, was well. If he's he was going to land around ten a.m., so he's in Buffalo this mm-hmm. morning, uh, traveling to meet families of the victims of the shooting in that city on Saturday and to visit memorials. Uh, he's also going to talk about what he can do through executive action on gun control, apparently, and like. You know, okay, yeah, maybe there is something to be done there. Uh, but it seems to me that that is the last step in a step in a really long chain of yes. events. And so, you know, this person, Peyton Gendron, I guess it's Gendron. I was saying Gendron <sighs> yesterday, and uh-huh. apparently I was wrong. Uh, he bought this gun legally, as far as we know. Uh, one of the worst headlines yesterday yeah. was how the guy who sold it to him feels terrible. Oh, yeah. Like, I bet, I'm yeah. Sure. I bet you would. You really should. But, you know, he was 18 years old. He had apparently already been investigated for making a threat to his high school. He, That's at the right. time, you know, I think he seems to have gotten out of it by saying, nah, that was a joke. I just mm-hmm. wanted to get out of class. Um, but he was also, you know, and this is all according to his manifesto. Mm-hmm. So who knows if he's making it all up? Right. Or right. if it's true, um, but seems to have been radicalized over the last couple of years after getting really bored during the pandemic and spending a whole bunch of time online. Mm-hmm. And we had a conversation yesterday about how difficult it is to get help for mental health disorders in teens. And so, you know, it's impossible to know if if an act like uh, of terrorism like this could have been stopped by somebody noticing that this guy was going off the rails and having the capacity to do something about it. But, you know, I I can't think it could have hurt, you know, if you do notice that your student or your son or your 
nephew or your cousin is behaving oddly and to say like, hey, you know, maybe you should somebody should intervene here. Maybe you should talk to someone. And for that to be a possibility and not a possibility that's a month's out and costs hundreds of dollars. Right. Right. And again, who knows? Maybe maybe nothing could have been done. Maybe he was absolutely, uh, you know, in, in sound mind and just committed an evil act because mm-hmm. that's what he really wanted to do. And nothing was going to dissuade him from that. But, you know. It would be nice to to be able to avert things that could be averted, especially right. among young people like this. But if you're going to do that, you're going to have to change our public health system and change our public education system. And so no one's going to do that. And so, OK, well, we'll just see if we can, like, put a put a cork in the very last stage of this terrible process. One of the things that I, I'm going to be interested to follow is the Biden administration's response to all this. And what I mean specifically is, does the, does the federal government take over the case and treat it as, as a hate crime, in which case he would be eligible for the death penalty? Do you execute an 18-year-old? Do you execute an 18-year-old that may be mentally ill? I mean, we, uh, I don't know. Yeah. But it's certainly something that I'm, I'm sure they're talking about at the, uh, at the Justice Department right now. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we should execute anybody no, regardless of uh, guilt. But I don't either. The other thing that's horrifying here is that apparently the shooter had been posting about these plans for months. Yes. Right? Posting about them on Twitch and, mm-hmm. and Discord and other places. And like no one Nobody thought said to anything. flag this. Or who knows? I mean, maybe we will learn that people did. And the tips got lost or got ignored. You know, we'll see. But if they didn't, then you think like, oh, what 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 kind of society do we live in? What kind of, yeah, what kind of like conversations are happening on these boards where that doesn't draw uh, notice? Anyway, so there's a lot to still be known. Joe Biden is there. We'll see what he has to say about about gun control. But like there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of culpability here. There was also this terrible shooting in California, which we mentioned yesterday and didn't get to get deeply into, but it just gets weirder. Um, One person died, five more were injured. This is again, mostly older people, this time at a church congregation. And again, racially and politically motivated and also crazy. Uh, Apparently the shooter had a grievance against Taiwan and Taiwanese people. Yeah. But the mystery, and I mean, I, I, I think I know what sounds like it's more accurate, but it seems like initially the local sheriff uh, you know, local law enforcement investigating the case said that this this shooter, who's David Chu, was born in mainland China, yes. moved to Taiwan at some point and then moved to the States. And he, along the way, developed a, a hatred for the island and its people because right. of how he had been treated there. But crazy Taiwan's de facto embassy in the U.S., the, the California branch of this uh, organization, says, no, he was born in Taiwan. He has a Taiwanese passport. He did military service in Taiwan. Wow. Yeah. And so I believe them, I think, you know, I think they would have the, uh, they would have the records, right? So I, I find it sounds it, like he's just nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Sounds like, sounds like. And he went case. all the way from Las Vegas to Orange County to do this shooting. Yeah. Just, you know. Yeah. This and is saying someone's crazy, it's also like saying someone's crazy isn't to, you know, uh, dilute responsibility not in these all. cases, right? Because they don't seem to be, ha- they don't seem to be suffering from delusions, right? If you're having That's some right. kind of like psychotic break, I think, okay, we have yeah. to, we can have a conversation about responsibility. But I think, you know, it generally, it's, it's, it's a nutty thing to do. There have also been a series of drive-by shootings in Dallas yeah. at businesses owned by Asian people or Asian Americans. That's and right. it seems like there have been three just in May 
but also two in April. And originally, officials have been treating them as separate instances and not necessarily uh, racially motivated crimes. But now they have identified what could be connections between all three or sorry, all five, I guess, and are saying "Ah, these these might be hate crimes. This happened, if you recall, with the uh, D.C. sniper. I remember reading the the Washington Post. I had a hard copy of the Washington Post, and there was this little blurb, like three sentences, uh, that somebody somebody shot a guy walking his dog in Bethesda. And like three pages later, there's another little tiny blurb saying, oh, somebody shot this uh, woman over here at the Home Depot. And I thought to myself, well, I mean, we don't have... We don't have nobody, just People random, don't get shot walking no, their dogs in Bethesda very often. Here. Yeah, yeah. And... I thought, am I nuts or are these connected? Next thing you know, they're warning us about the D.C. sniper. Yeah. Oh, so man, these I things was... happen. And sometimes law enforcement's asleep at the switch. I worked next door to a woman I couldn't stand at that time. I worked for a really small uh, consulting firm, and next door was a woman who, I think she was a lawyer. I don't know what she did. Did you ask her to go get you gas or something? No, I remember her coming over. This was right after anthrax, and she was also always worried that someone was going to put anthrax in her personal mail, which uh, oh, bothered yeah. me to don't no end. When it was like, nobody cares about you. Uh, but I remember her coming over, sort of knocking on the door. I was in like the suite next to hers, and I was the only employee at my company. And her coming in and nervously asking me if I thought the sniper was going to start targeting affluent areas. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my like, God. I hope so. Get oh out of here. That's what you're worried about? Ah, uh, yeah. I, I remember haven't actually, seen her in 20 years, but she made an impression on me. I remember actually crouching down at the gas station while filling my car. Uh, no, I wasn't. I wasn't <laughs> going to do any of that. I was like, if it comes, if death comes for me today, it comes. I'm not going to, I'm not going to zigzag to the bus. Get out of here. <laughs> we also had big news today about uh, the tax filings of the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, yeah. which I say again to stress that this is the global, ne- this is the centralized organization that was created and does not, very specifically does not reflect um, the attitudes or goals of uh, the about a dozen chapters who that's right. have been calling it out from the start, right? Yeah, that's Which I think right. is always important to to highlight. But so these these tax filings have come out, and they are actually a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. The organization spent more than thirty seven million in the last fiscal year and ended the year with forty two million dollars left. Twenty six million of what of they money. spent. Went to Black Lives Matter chapters. A bunch of them, including D.C., got pledges for uh, grants of half a million dollars. They went to other organizations and they went to some families of police brutality victims. So that's like 70 percent of what the organization spent. Yes. That seems good. Yeah. You know, like that's what it's intended to do. It's giving out money to to the chapters that are underneath it as this umbrella organization. Um, The other stuff that doesn't look good, of course, you have this six million dollar property that is supposed to be, uh, you know, host artists and residency. I saw something that I guess it is. It's like, okay, this is sort of one at a time thing, whatever. Um, And the fact that the the major consultancies that the organization seems to have hired all seem to have personal connections to the co-founder and former director, Patrice Cullors. And so and they were like getting a million, a million ish a pop, right, for security services. And again, understandable that you want security that doesn't have to do with the police if you are a movement that is, you know, uh, figuratively Mm -hmm. confronting Mm -hmm. the police. Having it be 
someone in your personal orbit, that doesn't look so great. Yeah, also like for your like boyfriend event- or your brother or yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. events management, etc. Uh, from what I understand, Colors Herself wasn't getting a salary according to these filings, and she reimbursed the foundation for some expenses like a charter flight and like for using the using the property for private events. So she must have money coming from somewhere, but she paid. You know, she paid them back for that charter flight. She paid them back for that use. So you know. It doesn't seem like she was using BLM funds for personal for personal entertainment or personal travel, at least uh, all the time. But the other weird thing is that the foundation still apparently has no executive director and doesn't have any in-house staff. (laughs) And so, you know, AP had a big story about this. A bunch of organizations have had big stories. AP spoke with a bunch of experts that said, yeah, you know, looking at these tax filings, this looks like a, a small organization that does not have any resources. And since we've been talking about this, we've been saying, yeah, you know, if you get if you get a a sudden windfall, it can definitely throw your organization into chaos for sure. But it has been some time now. And so I think, you know, it is probably time to start finding some some professionals without start a doubt. filling out your staff stop looking like you are giving jobs to you know or stop giving jobs to people who are personally connected to you and hire some other people. And I think it is, you know. I think it is true that uh, black women get a lot of scrutiny and are treated as untrustworthy. Yes. You know, they're treated as untrustworthy when they're complaining about pain, when they're giving birth. They're That's treated right. as untrustworthy patients sort of across the board. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that I think that there are a lot of reasons for the scrutiny this organization gets. But it's also because they got a lot of money and have set themselves up to speak for the most victimized and downtrodden. Yes. And so, you know, I don't I, I don't. I am not a financial consultant. I don't know if we should look at these tax records and go, you should have spent that other 42 million as well. You should have spent a big chunk of it. I will be interested to see the reaction from the Black Lives Matter chapters, D.C. among them, Philadelphia, Houston, a bunch of big cities who were the first to call this central foundation out and who have been doing it from the start. Yes. You know, uh, they they are the ones who are in the middle of this. They are the ones who who, you know, were initially uh, disappointed and initially drew attention to what they thought was, uh, you know, dodgy dealing at the top. Mm-hmm. I would like to see what they have to say. So, you know, I think a, a mixed bag and definitely time to hire hire some real staff. If you, like if you intend to follow through on this responsibility that you have taken on, that's what you need to do. Agreed. And Michelle, um, while I was writing notes to myself uh, when I came in uh, this morning, I noticed that all three of the major cable news networks were focused on UFOs. UFOs. I love UFOs. And I'm not going to start calling them unidentified aerial phenomena. Absolutely not. I'm not. Over my dead not body. Not doing it. UFOs They're for life. They're UFOs. <laughs> they were breathless this morning because there is a congressional hearing today. And it is the first congressional hearing open to the public on UFOs since 1966. So the Washington Post says that there has been this bureaucratic fight between the Pentagon on one side, which actually wants to release the information, and the intelligence community on the other side, which is CIA, DIA, DNI, NSA, that want to keep the information classified. Of course they do. Why? Who knows? Just for the sake of keeping it classified, I guess. But anyway, this thing is going on today, 
they're they're having a number of different speakers. They're already releasing all kinds of new video. And I mentioned to you before we started the show that some of these videos, you look at them and you say, oh, my God, that's a flying triangle. I I forgot to watch any of the videos this morning, and I'm sad that I didn't. <laughs> and then some of them, I'm thinking, come on, that's just a reflection off the off the windshield of the plane or whatever you call that thing in in jets. You know, who knows? Uh, either way, they're they're very interesting, and uh, we're going to be able to talk about this uh, again tomorrow. I think it is. I think it's incredible how little attention this is getting. I agree. Imagine if this had been underway in like. 2012 right or I don't know in a different in a different news cycle somehow right they or like when I don't know it's amazing to me when they they first dropped that report in I think it was about a year ago right uh the DNI released uh, a nine page report I think not not as much information as a lot of people were hoping for but then also when the New York Times I think it was a year before. I think the pandemic has really sort of swamped this. Yes. A little bit. Agreed. And it would have been getting a lot more attention under different circumstances. Agreed. I'm sort of sad that we I don't get like, front page, you know, big front page headlines about uh-huh. UFO revelations. I totally agree. And actually, before we go on to the next one. Uh, sure. Everybody's got a UFO story. Everybody. So people are seeing something. And I would love to know what the government has done to actually investigate these things. I think that would be fascinating. Yeah. Even if there's no real answer at the end where the Pentagon can't come out and say, we've investigated it and it's this, you know, we made contact with them, they're aliens, or it was a Russian balloon, or it was, you know, a sunspot exploding or whatever. I I don't think we're going to get there, but more information is better than less information. Yeah. So there's another kerfuffle between the uh, the UK and the European Union brewing. Uh, this is kind of fun to me, only because every last one of my British friends was opposed to Brexit, and you know the, the UK has become a more conservative place in recent decades, and uh, and Brexit passed twice, I might add, and so they're stuck with it. The two sides, though, right now are simply not able to come to an agreement on post-Brexit trade between the European Union and Northern Ireland. We mentioned on the show the other day that Sinn Féin, for the first time in history, has uh, won a plurality in Northern Ireland. They have the right to form a government. But there's this trade situation that they just can't figure out. And what it is, is... Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland have an open border. But since the UK has withdrawn from the European Union, then the borders are supposed to be closed, including for trade. So do you leave that border open? Then it's this giant hole where, where goods can go move in and out of Europe and in and out of the UK, and it's going to screw all the taxes up. So, um, The UK decided to write a new law that would override parts of the existing deal that the Brits have with the European Union over Brexit. The only problem is you can't do that. The deal is the deal. Yeah. Right. The deal is the deal, whether Boris Johnson likes the deal or not, because it's been signed and sealed and it's done. 
the UK's foreign secretary, Liz Truss, told Parliament yesterday that, sure, the proposed law is illegal. She understands that. Sure. Yeah, it's illegal. But but (laughs) it's okay to pass it because once it passes, it'll give both sides the impetus that they need to negotiate a new deal so that the illegal law will never actually become law. It's just a motivating factor. And the European Commission issued a statement today saying, yeah, that's not going to happen. The deal is the deal. We're not talking about this anymore. Yeah, that's like saying if you sign a contract that you know is illegal, it's going to, you know, pressure you to do something according to uh, that just seems silly Boris Johnson was down I mean this is a this is a political standoff ultimately it seems like this is a political standoff between uh well you could say Sinn Féin and the DUP but it's like the DUP and whoever Sinn Féin's like yeah okay we're we like it we're happy with this protocol we we want to keep it we're not we don't object to anything but they can't form a government until you know the other guys knuckle under yes and I don't know what they I don't. Yeah. Knowing what the thought process is behind this is is uh, difficult to parse unless it's just dragging your feet, trying to raise some objection to joining a a government that's headed by a nationalist party. And hey, I don't know. Don't know what to tell you. You lost that vote. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Nobody said this was going to be easy. And in fact, everybody said it was going to be very difficult. Oh, you know what else people said wasn't going to be easy? Buying Twitter. (laughs) that's true too another day uh, more ambiguity on this Twitter deal who cares at this point this is all about how much of Twitter is or isn't spam and uh, yeah Elon Musk is saying Twitter Twitter won't prove that fewer than uh, 5% 5%. of users are bots and And, now did you see he was warned over the weekend that even by saying that, he violated the NDA. I mean, he obviously does not care. No, he doesn't right? care. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. What else do we have? Uh, we, we talked a tiny bit yesterday about the uh, baby, formula short- yeah. baby formula shortage in the United States. So the news today is that, you know, the, the FDA commissioner, who everybody hates, yep. uh, said, it, could this crucial plant that was shut down by the FDA a couple of months back after babies got sick yes. from drinking the formula that came out of it. Uh, he said yesterday that the plant operated by Abbott Nutrition, who made the formula, could be up and running again in about two weeks. But two weeks was the timeline. The plant had said, as soon as we get clearance from the FDA, we can ramp things up and we can start producing two weeks from then. So that would mean that this FDA approval to open up must be imminent. But right. as far as I understand, it has not actually come down yet. So the plant's going, yeah, two weeks from the day that you give us the okay, right. you know, we can go. And on one hand, yeah, I would like to see formula being produced. I saw a headline that Nestle is uh, going to try and import some uh, formula from from other places into the U.S. to alleviate the shortage. But, you know, I yeah, I want to see the plant start producing. I would also like to see it producing under safe and hygienic Conditions yeah, exactly, which was the reason it got shut down. We're talking about, yeah. And so, you know, if it can't, if it can't be rushed, it can't be rushed because you definitely don't want a bunch of uh, baby formula full of God knows what right. salmonella or, right. or who knows what. So, but again, it's sort of the FDA talking about a timeline that it has to pull the trigger on. Yes, basically. So we'll see. We will see what happens. Yeah, yeah. I'm worried about it, and I'll tell you the truth. I'm a little worried that Nestle is involved because. <laughs> 
why? <laughs> because of their. Sl- I mean, Nestle's been, been involved yeah, in yeah, making baby formula. Yeah. So yeah, it's because they own all the water and they control the the water resources. Yeah. Like water's not a human right to them; it's a commodity that they can control. Nestle's dirty. Yeah, Nestle's dirty. I think we could take a break here, John. Yep. We're trying to get our next guest on the line. Uh, and so we're going to take a little break here and see if we manage that. But there's a lot more to get to either way. Uh, we'll be right back here on Radio Sputnik live in D.C. in just a sec. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. We're doing a little foreign affairs and news roundup, talking about the end of the battle for Mariupol. We'll talk about what's happening in Israel as another funeral is attacked and why it's not only Israel that seems to be very concerned about Palestinian flags mm-hmm. not palestinian rights no. so much yeah, weird flags. how that works the flags though pushing people <laughs> Very over dangerous. the edge we are joined now by journalist and author arnold august arnold thanks for being here <laughs> so let's talk about what is happening in ukraine as the azovstal steel plant in mariupol is actually being evacuated. We reported that this was planned yesterday. And uh, now this plant, which is the last stronghold of Ukrainian fighters in the city, is allowing a a couple hundred wounded soldiers to leave. They're going to be transferred to Russian controlled parts of the country. They're going to go get medical care. And the idea is that they will later be exchanged for Russian prisoners of war. Negotiations are apparently still underway regarding the exit of soldiers who are left there. And the last Ukrainian figures that were given out were that there were about a thousand uh, fighters holed up in the tunnels underneath the massive plant system. So if like 260 have been evacuated now as the wounded, uh, there'd be 700 or so left. Um this is basically the loss of Mariupol, right, which is a very strategically significant city, particularly for Russia. And so I wonder how how controlling Mariupol is going to change the war for both countries. Oh, we're going to have to get we're going to have to get our guest in another connection. It's not we'll have to try to call him back. But so Mariupol is is a key, is. right, a key in uh, yes. establishing a, a land bridge from Crimea to uh, eastern areas. That's and right. so it seems like, you know, Ukraine was sort of trying trying to paint this as a as not a positive development, but that, yeah. you know, they, these were heroes and they were wanted, you know, they wanted their heroes to stay alive. I mean, look, mm-hmm. I'm all for uh, not fighting to mm-hmm. your last breath, but this would seem to be a pretty um, significant change. And yet yes. at the same time, you have, you know, a relatively high level people. I think this was on one of the morning um news podcast I was listening to uh, saying, actually, no, it's still possible for Ukraine to win the war. We just have to give them the right weapons and more of them. Oh, boy. And so it does seem, you know, it's so. If I could interrupt you for sure. one second. I, nobody has explained what what that means, what winning the war means. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at a New York Times piece right now uh, that they have on the front page on a Russian talk show. A retired colonel stuns his colleagues by pointing out that the invasion isn't going well. And this whole article is about um, 
uh, morale, right? And he he talked about morale during the Second World War and morale in uh, in Afghanistan, and that professional soldiers normally have a higher morale than conscripts. Stuff we we all sure. know. Yeah. But but nobody's talking about what victory looks like. No. And I'm afraid that even behind closed doors, the two sides aren't talking about what victory looks like. And that would lend that would lend to the conclusion that this thing just could drag on, you know, for forever. I mean, I think that's the idea, right? For for uh, at least for some people, for if, sure, this if, is if the you're idea. In if you're, the West, yeah. yes, I think the idea is to have a drag on. Because listen, we're not doing this out of the goodness of our hearts. We're not. The United States is not supplying and arming the Ukrainians just because we have this deep love of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. It's to tie the Russians up in knots and to keep them on the battlefield so the Ukrainians can kill them. You've heard this joke a million times about fighting. You know, the United States wants to fight to the last Ukrainian. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. And that's what makes this so dangerous. Let me see if uh, if our guest, yes. do we have our guest back? Let's see what Arnold August has to say. How does this change the war? Well, I think it's a major development, uh, despite what the uh, corporate media has been feeding us over the last while, that Ukraine is winning and Russia is losing and all that. It does not seem to be the case. The the, the taking uh, of the evacuation of that steel plant and uh, the Russian forces being in a position to take those prisoners of war is a major setback for Ukraine. They put everything into the defense of that steel plant. And, uh, you know, we also learned recently that there were actually some uh, American generals uh, uh, in that steel plant, I guess, assisting uh, Ukraine and trying to resist Russia. So I think it's it's a major uh, victory for Russia. Of course, uh, much of the steel plant has been destroyed. And uh, the image that is given through the mainstream media is not very um, uh, positive with regards to Russia, but the fact remains that the uh, Ukraine, with all the backing that they have, and that's not case of Ukraine, the Ukraine armed forces is not some kind of a, you know something that just you know came out of uh, nowhere uh, like a ragtag army. They're very heavily armed by NATO, heavily trained by NATO. And most importantly, their their position against Russia is very heavily echoed in the media across the world. So despite that, uh, I, I would say the uh, taking of that steel plant is a victory for Russia. And that city is, Mariupol, is very important, not only symbolically, but also, uh, I would say, uh, politically, because it sort of uh, is uh, emblematic of uh, what is being fought for, that, situ- that is situated in a, in a place where the majority, a very important majority in that area in Mariupol, surrounding territory, is actually Russian-speaking. So I, I think this is uh, is a uh, an important point, an important win. But I I think it's also important to to, to mention that like, why is the, the Ukrainian side and the United States trying to imply or implying that they're winning the war, Russia is losing. I would say the, there are various reasons, but one reason comes to mind 
If it is well embedded in the mindset of the military-industrial complex and the U.S. ruling elite that Ukraine is winning and Russia is losing, so this is a bargaining chip that Ukraine and the U.S. have in order to increase the funding in support of the Ukrainian army. I mean, it was what, what from $13 billion to $40 billion dollars. Mm-hmm. And, and, and military and other aid to Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah. I will say we've had these reports of, uh, you know, have come from different quarters of uh, Americans being spotted here and there, high level Americans. They never seem to come to anything. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see if, you know, any of those really end up being um, confirmed. I also wanted to ask you, Arnold, about what is going on in Israel we, of course, we all saw footage of the funeral procession of Shireen Abu Akla being attacked by Israeli soldiers. Outrageous. Uh, according to reporters who say they've spoken to her family, the Israeli police were very clear that they did not want a public procession and they didn't want to see Palestinian flags or hear Palestinian chants. You know, which I just think, like, who do you think you are? You yeah, know, you, exactly. You can't be dead and Palestinian. But, you know, disruptions of funerals are not anything new. And there was another one just yesterday when, according to Al Jazeera, more than 70 Palestinians were injured after Israeli police shot tear gas canisters and rubber coated bullets at a funeral procession. This was for a man who had been gravely injured at Al-Aqsa Mosque last month during one of the many Israeli raids on the compound. His family says he was shot in the head with a rubber bullet. Israel says he fell. Uh, In both cases, what Israel is saying is, we don't want flags. We don't want nationalist chants. And they'll say mourners threw rocks at them. And I just wonder, Arnold, what, what do you think they're really reacting to? You think they're re- reacting to having rocks thrown at them or are they reacting to this flag? Well, first, I'd like to echo what John, if I heard correctly, said. It's outrageous. Mm-hmm. Almost an understatement. I'm sure myself, like as both of you, when we saw the footage uh, of the funeral, first funeral procession, how it was attacked by Israel and another one coming on its heel, it is completely unacceptable. I think that this may uh, uh, indicate a, another tipping point in the Middle East in favor of Palestine with the further support of the Islamic Republic of Iran, Hezbollah, uh, and uh, Hamas, and Gaza, I like my like my basic reaction. I watch the you know I very closely monitor social media on that issue, and you know basically a lot of the social media in North America and Western Europe and all that they say how outrageous it is, and they said justice should be done for the uh, assassinated journalists. I agree with that, but I think we in the West should we not also uh, combine that uh, you know outrage with what happened. And carrying on or increasing, for example, the BDS movement, I think that, in my view, we have to simultaneously with that openly support Palestinian resistance, resistance with the capital R. When I, you know, let me spell it out. When I when I speak of Palestinian resistance, I very uh, without any shame or whatever include the Islamic Republic of, of Iran, Mass, uh, and the. Uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon. There's no other way. If, you know, whenever like this, these attacks took place, we are bound to see, as we are seeing, you quoted some uh, indicate, uh, uh, indication of how the Israeli narrative is going to go, but there's bound to be some uh, a concrete response by the resistance. This is where we come in. 
you know, we cannot just say, oh, it's outrageous what Israel did. But when the resistance retaliates, and may I say, in any way that they think appropriate, we have to be there in the international scene, in the, in the narrative saying, yes, we here and then in the capitalist West, we support that resistance. Cut off that narrative that, you know, the Palestinian uh, people, sure, it's very bad what's happening. Even Blinken and you know, all these people, they, you know, say how bad, uh, the, how bad that incident was when the journalist was killed. Okay, fine. But what is the solution? It's resist. If it was not for the Palestinian resistance, the Palestinian, Palestinian people would have been eliminated as a people. There was no other way if it was if it was not for the Palestinian resistance. And from my reading of the situation, my contacts have very, very close ties with the Palestinian, the uh, the resistance in the Middle East. This is bound to increase. It is bound to increase, and we have to say yes. That is your right, right here in North. I'd say it's your it's your right as an occupied people to mm-hmm. armed resistance is illegal. If, I would if, resist. Yeah. 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 And I think that's a good point to say, like, no, it actually, you know, there in there are some cases in which you can support all kinds of resistance. That's right. I also want to ask about what uh, has been going on in Germany before we let you go, Arnold. On Sunday, Palestinians and their supporters marked Nakba Day in Berlin and were greeted by a thousand police who, according to reports, were kettling and arresting people for carrying Palestinian flags or just wearing kafias. And so in the last month or two, Berlin has issued a, a, several short-term bans on Palestinian solidarity marches, including over a couple of days in April and then earlier this month, um, after they said attendees at prior marches had said anti-Semitic things. And it is funny, it is very clear, or sorry, very unclear what actually happened, right? You have some reports that say, yeah, there was some teenage boy who was saying hateful things, but the rest of the organization, the the march was peaceful. Uh, there are other reports that say uh, there were attacks on synagogues, uh, you know, and so it's sort of like some, you know, uh, burning Israeli flags. I sort of think I think if you want to burn an Israeli flag, go for it. If you want to attack a synagogue, well, what's the matter that's, with you? Yeah, you know, that's, different. that's a terrible thing. Yeah. But these you have these conflicting reports. The response by the the Berlin authorities has been to say you cannot have pal- uh, Palestinian marches. You can't wave these flags. They arrested, I think, something like uh, 70 people. I forget. They arrested a serious number of people. And now there is apparently discussion of making it harder to organize demonstrations just in general. And so, you know, this isn't happening in Israel. This is happening in Berlin. And I wonder what you think the response should be. Well, I think uh, I think one has to reflect upon, like, this is Germany. Now, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, is not that that the, it's not that Germany that was at the center of World War II. Mm. <laughs> you know, along Same place. The, well, and so how can we just sort of abstract what is happening in Germany to what happened in World War II? So, I mean, this is like why Germany is hitting hard against the Palestinians, less so than in France. I don't know. I don't really know unless you guys have some into it, but I know that they, perhaps Germany does not want to the world to see that within Germany there are people from all walks of life who support the Palestinian resistance. And I think Germany, perhaps more than any other country in Europe and even in North America, wants to keep that off the radar, that there are massive movement in Germany in support of, of Palestine. 
else, and I guess this is also linked with the another important factor that you know also went under the head, went under the radar, was that of all countries in the world, on the question of the Ukraine, where everyone knows it's a Nazi-infested government, Kiev, you have Germany for the first time in several decades, decades actually actively taking part in military support for the Nazi-infested uh, government in Kiev. So I guess, are these things collect, uh, connected? Uh, Germany stepping up, uh, stepping up its war efforts in Ukraine, and at the same time trying to suppress opposition to uh, on the issue of Palestine? Like, what, maybe, ha- maybe they're afraid of this. Let me, let me know what you think. What happens? Like, these countries who are, who are aligning themselves with the United States, like the latest, for example, Sweden and Norway. Well, if they were so, if Sweden, uh, um, I, I'm not Finland, Sweden and Finland were so democratic, why the hell don't they have a referendum in their respective country? Do you agree or not to agree that Finland and Sweden should get involved along with the United States and Ukraine? There's a lot of, you know, and the same thing uh, can apply with regards to uh, with regards to Palestine. You know, uh, should the German government uh, ally itself with the United States in order to suppress the Palestinian people, which is carried out, as many commentators say, not just the three of us, but many people from a wide cross section of uh, Western society, saying that the Israeli government is not really a government. Zionist entity is really a fascist organization. It's a terrorist organization supported entirely by the United States, another terrorist organization. So, you know, will there be another incident? Will there be a, another uprising in Palestine? So I think this, these, all of these issues are, are very much connected. Thank you. That was Arnold August. Arnold, thank you so much for joining us. He's an author and a journalist. We really appreciate your time. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back in just a sec. We're live in D.C. We're on Radio Sputnik. We'll speak to you in a second. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou talking about not COVID, but still pretty scary bird flu. Yeah. It has been kind of flying under the radar, uh, what with, of course, a baby formula shortage as well and this series of tragic shootings and COVID resurging. Um, But the bird flu this year seems particularly scary. We've already had what I understand to be record calls of birds of five million at once at one farm a couple weeks ago. And now I'm seeing that the disease have been found for the first time in wild turkeys, which seems like a negative development. Here to tell us what is going on is George Naylor. He's a farmer and former president of the National Family Farm Coalition. George, thanks for joining us. Might have to call George back. Uh, I'm wondering. So like bird flu is not new, John. No, no. In fact, it it. It happens every year. Yes, it's it's been I think it has been a pretty significant issue since, what, 2014 mm-hmm. when it came over here. And so, you know, it, it is. But it does seem as though this year could be a particularly virulent strain. Yes. And, and oftentimes it jumps to humans 
Yeah. So that, well, that's that the other thing. It doesn't. It's too. a. It's apparently it's it's uncommon. I've seen reports that one person so far, one yeah. person has been yeah, sickened from bird flu. It's not no indication that this bird flu. I mean, the bird flu it, it is a different strain every year, just like the flu. All flus. We, all yeah. flus. Right. Yeah. So yeah, there's no there's no indication that this one has jumped, and uh, I don't want to scare people. No, yes. Well, the other thing is, you have this AP report that I thought was very funny. I'm, I'm interested to get John, uh, George back to talk about because AP has this report out saying there's now a bunch of conspiracy theories yeah. out that bird flu's not real. Yep. And like, ah, I don't know. I would be very interested to see if that is actually true because it's hard for me to imagine that if you are a farmer and you've seen this happen you know, year after year for a few cycles that you would possibly be swayed by someone on a message board going, right. uh, it's a, it's a, it's a scam to get you to destroy all of your chickens for no good reason. Right. You know, it doesn't seem to make a ton of sense to me, but of course, if our guest says that uh, it is actually persuading people, that will be of some concern also. Well, there's a, there's a U.S. News and World Report article that was published just two hours ago uh, and it's entitled Conspiracy Theorists Flock to Bird Flu, Spread Falsehoods. Yeah, this is what's so already happening. I mean, it's already I guess like, you know, idiots can post whatever they want on message boards. Sure. Right. The thing that I wonder is, is anyone is anyone taking note? Really? Is anyone of consequence right. taking note? You right. know, like someone who has a farm. Because, of course, if somebody does like that's about, you know, the, the way you contain this is by uh, containing it across the board. Right. Yes. And so if you do have one dude who's going to say, nah, actually, I'll just see if they get better, which who knows, maybe they would. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, seems like seems not right. Um, then it puts everybody else's uh, birds at risk. But again, it seems hard to imagine that someone is going to decide to chance it at this point. Uh, we will just have to I, we'll have to see. I got to interrupt you, too. Please. The, the, I'm only three paragraphs into this new article in U.S. News. And, uh-huh. and this is what we're up against, Michelle. So. Some people are saying, well, first they start up by saying, you know, there's this guy in uh, in Iowa. He's a sixth generation farmer. He's been on this farm since 1924. It was his grandfather's or his family has anyway. And uh, it's it's horrible. The the there's usually this deafening sound of, of chickens clucking. Now it's just silent. He's going to have to kill all the chickens because they're sick. Terrible. It happened in 2015. It happened in 2011. Yeah. This kind of thing happens. But now he said he's being inundated on the Internet with uh, comments that this is not a bird flu. It's COVID for chickens. That's one. The other one is um, that uh, it's caused by 5G towers. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) And and others that it is a bird flu, but it's been engineered by the Pentagon to be a bioweapon. Oh, of course. Uh Yeah, that one makes a lot of sense. I think we have our guest back now, uh, George Naylor. We were just talking about what are (laughs) apparently some of the uh, online theories spreading around about this bird flu. But I wonder if you can talk to us about, you know, about this year's outbreak so far. Well, um, yeah, I'd wish I, I wish I was informed. I, I've read various articles, mm-hmm. and it seems like uh, some articles contradict other articles. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's like about everything that you would read about agriculture in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, 99% of what's written is, uh, is misinformation. And uh, so who knows? I mean, for one, one I will read uh, where the birds in this country got it from migratory birds that came from China. 
I didn't know there were migratory birds. <laughs> That's yeah. one long flight. Yes. <laughs> Another thing is, uh, you know, all these birds in these big CAFOs, these are giant, you know, where millions of birds are, are in a, confined in a, in a building. And so how would the virus spread from wild birds to the birds in the buildings? You know, there's, there's a roof on them. The only way it would happen is if it comes through the air, which it might. I have no idea. Um, but anyway, like I said, you read different things, so it's hard to know. And, there, uh, you know, whether you want to call it a conspiracy or not, like I said, 99% uh, of what you read about agriculture and the food system in this country is misinformation, and it's spread by the mainstream media, by the food industry, manufactured food, by the way, uh, and by land-grant universities who have supported this kind of agriculture from the get-go. Well, let me ask, what does it mean that we are seeing this disease in some wild groups for the first time, right? Because this is something I understand this is a problem of large farms, uh, but for the first time it's been identified in wild turkeys. So does, does this pose a threat to, to wild bird populations? Well, there again, I don't know. Uh, you know, see, I'm not an expert on a lot of these questions. I've been a farmer okay. for 46 years. And my family's farmed in this county for way over 100 years. Uh, so I've got all kinds of uh, family stories about how cholera went through and wiped out their, all their hogs. Jeez. Every one of them. That's awful. And my neighbors who raise hogs yet, uh, some, almost always in CAFOs, uh, diseases will go through. And there's really no explanation of why they came. So I assume that it came through the air. But... Uh, you know, uh, wild birds, how would I know? I have no idea. And uh... <laughs> Well, let me ask you, let me ask you your thoughts on a farming system that could require the deaths of millions of animals all at once. Right. And deaths that seem very cruel. Right. Suffocating in heat, suffocating in, in foam. You know, I, we've already seen the, the human covid pandemic lead to the mass slaughter of pigs and chickens, not for consumption, but just to save money. And like, I understand that farming and raising meat involves growth and death, but it seems like to create scenarios where you routinely have to dispose of thousands or millions of living beings, not even to be eaten, you know, that seems like a, a moral void to me, right? And I wonder if just looking at what, what you have to do to control this disease should make people reconsider the way our, our farming system is structured. It's not, yeah, but it's not a question of just our food system or farming system. Mm -hmm. It's a question of the whole economy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what, what motivates any kind of economic activity? Well, it's called money. Mm -hmm. If you can do it more efficiently by having millions of chickens or hogs or whatever or cattle in confinement, that's the way you do it, regardless of what kind of... Uh, ecological or uh, humane uh, crises that involves, somebody's making millions of dollars. For instance, you call these farms. They're not farms, factories. They've got millions of chickens, millions of turkeys, and millions of hogs, and millions and thousands of cattle in confinement, and you don't even know who owns those chickens, but I'll, I'll guarantee you they're vertically integrated into the manufactured food system. Iowa is the largest egg producer with 60 million uh, birds in the United States, in, in Iowa. And most of those eggs end up being dried or turned into liquid for the manufactured food industry. Yeah. Mm. So to, 
you know, you have to understand these are not really farms. Uh, yeah. They don't raise the feed for their for those livestock. They buy their corn and soybean meal uh, through processors, or they even have their own processing company uh, that was raised by family farmers. And uh, those family farmers have no other alternative anymore because livestock is now uh, raised in these CAFOs instead of on the farm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember during the pandemic, there were stories of, uh, you know, the just mass destruction of eggs. And people are like, why? You, could, you cannot sell eggs. And they'd say, no, these are, they're designed to just be liquefied, whipped up, beaten. You can't, we don't have the capability to sell them as individual wow. eggs. It's not, yeah. And of course it costs, it costs too much money. Well, I want to ask George, what, what would be, you know, if we were going to try to seriously sort of uh, deconsolidate and decentralize our farming system, you know, what's, what's step one? Would step one even be, you know, agriculture related or be economic? Well, um, you know, you can try to isolate parts of the economy and do what's right. And agriculture would be a, a prime suspect for that, um, because if you look back at the New Deal, for instance, there was a very critical piece of legislation uh, that was passed that addressed the problems of agriculture that are inherent in agriculture. And uh, we know, let's look at the minimum wage, for instance. That's another prime example. It's a great analogy. Now, the minimum wage in this country hasn't been increased since 2009. Okay, that tells you that the people at the bottom of the wage scale uh, have experienced dire economic consequences. They've had to live with those, and they've had to change their lifestyle, uh, sacrifice many things for their family, uh, all, you know, since 2009. Okay, well, the same thing has happened with agriculture. Uh, the products that we sell from the farm have declined in real value, in real dollars, so that the corn uh, that is produced on family farms now is about uh, 20, uh, except for this year, we're having some kind of a crazy price boom. Uh, up until last year, uh, the price of corn was only worth 25 to 30 percent of what it would have been if it had been kept, uh, kept up with inflation. So you see what happens is, well, it's easier for these big corporations to buy the corn off of the farm to feed their livestock in great big buildings than it is for the family farmer to raise the livestock on their farm. Yeah, so you would have to initially just, and you could say energy, any kind of basic raw material, it needs to be uh, priced in a way that all of the costs are included and uh, the, the future costs to future generations and the cost to the environment. Those things need to be included in the price that people, that corporations have to pay for those raw materials or for the labor that they hire. Yeah, and that starts a chain reaction, but that's a, it's going to be a very big process. I do hope we get to see it at least begin at some point in our lifetimes. That was George Naylor. He's a farmer. He's former president of the National Family Farms Coalition. George, we really appreciate your time. We're going to take a break here on Political Misfits and come back in just a sec, live in D.C. and on Radio Sputnik.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Michelle, um, there's a a story that I want to get into about Michael Sussman, and we have a guest that we're um, in the process of getting in touch with. But um, I wanted to bring up uh, something else, too. There is a... There is a... An event, I'll call it. I won't call it a demonstration. There's an event at uh, at 10th Street and Pennsylvania Avenue uh, beginning right now at one o'clock. And it's going to go to about three or three thirty in support of Julian Assange. And uh, they have a lot of people, friends of ours, um, people like Randy Credico and Max Blumenthal and Anya Parampil, who are going to uh, to be speaking it i i feel like we've sort of not we because you and i hold this as an important issue uh that many people in the progressive community are so worried about so many other issues right now that we've allowed the julian extradition situation to sort of fall by the wayside i mean now, also because it part, seems inevitable yeah. yeah and i think people that's right people have come to the conclusion that it is inevitable. It's going to happen. Certainly his attorneys have, have come to that conclusion. Now it's not formal. It's not official yet, but, uh, but I, I think the, the British uh, government is going to uh, have him on the plane uh, probably sometime next month. So one of the points that I'm going to, I'm going to make, I'm going to speak at this thing at, uh, at two thirty. One of the points that I want to make is that for those of us who believe in transparency for those of us who believe that the American people own the information that the government is keeping from us, that we have a right to know what our government is doing in our name. We need to be at that trial every single day. And one of the things that I keep thinking about is the fact that, you know, this has gone on for so long and it's so important in U.S. and international policy, national security, constitutionality, freedom of speech, etc. Every major news outlet in the world is going to be parked in front of the uh, federal courthouse in Alexandria, Virginia. And it will be an opportunity for the American public to actually uh, make its well known. Yeah, this will be one of the first times there's going to be a real locus of attention within the United States. Exactly. It was, of course responsible for all of this. You know, the weight is on us. The weight is on us as a, you know, the American government and the American people. Yeah. And so I think it, it, you know, as terrible as it is that it has gotten to this point, it provides another opportunity to put public pressure and to put public pressure really on the one entity that can do something at this point to change things. Right. Yes. the, The UK has decided, nope, we're going to go, we're going to go along with what you want. And so now it comes back here for, uh, what you know, what's going to be the final stage. I, I'm going to say something. I, I don't mean to make light of the situation because it's a very serious situation. And, and, and um, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to look for a silver lining here, at least a temporary one. Julian has been in a hellhole at Belmarsh Prison for how long now? Uh, two years. We're coming up on two years. Uh, Belmarsh Prison was built when Queen Victoria was queen. It, it's it's just a, a hellish place, cold, damp, people get sick in there all the time, you know, uncirculated air. It's just awful. He's going to be kept in the federal lockup in Alexandria, Virginia, 
which is actually by prison standards quite okay. Um, one of my cellmates when I was in prison was locked up uh, in Alexandria awaiting trial. And he was there for about nine months as he was awaiting trial. He was accused of being a major drug kingpin, a, a cartel person. And um, he had never been in prison before. And so he uh, called one of his family members and he said, they have this thing here called the commissary. And uh, you can buy, you know, food and toiletries and stuff. So you need to put some money in my account. They put $500,000 in his his commissary account. Oh, my God. And the government didn't know what to do. Like, what do we do? We want to install a bedroom set over here. (laughs) I'd like to get a sound system, please. We're going to need to upgrade the speakers in this joint. It was ramen for everybody. Oh, my God. (laughs) Ramen, but a lot of it, you know. A lot of ramen. Sounds like trail food. So, you know, like I say, Julian deserves to be free. Julian deserves to be leading this movement, uh, you know, in, in, in fighting for transparency and accountability of governments. He doesn't deserve to be in prison. Uh, but if he's going to be in a prison, at least he's going to be in that one. Yeah. Uh, now, with that said, I want to finish my original point. Uh, we have to be at that courthouse every day. Because while the trial is going on, everybody is, uh, oh, thank you. Pamela Drew uh, has just corrected me. He's been at Belmarsh for three years now as of April 11th. Thank you. Thank you, Pamela. Um, While this trial is going on, these giant crowds of reporters are going to be outside. They're just going to be standing around. Well, you have to hope they will. I hope. We haven't seen, you know, I, I think uh, hoping for giant crowds of reporters might be a bit much considering Do the attention. So? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see if there's a resurgence of interest. But if the U.S. mainstream press continues to treat this as, oh, well, this is a computer hacker who's coming to right. be, account, you know, well, that's account what I mean, for though. his computer crimes it's, and they've sort of dismissed it, then. It's up to us, yeah. though, to to correct to them. Make it now, a spe- I, well, to make them at least have to cover the spectacle. Yes, that's right. At least cover it. And, and the reason why I think that there will be a large crowd is because I've, I've been thinking about the Chelsea Manning trial at uh, at uh, NSA. And. Um, you know, they, they tried so hard to isolate the media from from the courtroom and from everybody else. You had to go into this building, this separate building and watch the trial on TV. Yeah. You had to have your notes, excuse me, cleared by uh, some censor. But the place was packed every day. Uh, Kevin Costala was there every single day and he used to write about the other reporters who were involved. I hope we see that kind of a turnout. Uh, for for this thing, if it happens, and um, and I think that we can and should and must overwhelm the media with well reasoned support for Julian Assange. This is something that's very important to yeah, me. Yeah, I do. I think so as well. And in a way, it, it sort of gives. A, I hope it gives a little bit of energy. Yeah. To. People who uh, have so. long supported Assange, people who are sort of just becoming aware of this case and what it means, who yes. maybe have changed their mind as they've seen the behavior of their government in the years that it has been persecuting Assange. Yes. Uh, and yeah, having it having it come back to, you know, the country that started it all, I think is it presents something of an opportunity as uh, dark as it is to say something is an opportunity when you're talking about, you know, a decade of somebody's life. Yeah. 
And yeah. I, I'm worried about the poor guy too. You know, oh, yeah. he, he used to write me, we, we would exchange letters and he would write and say, John, can you call this attorney and ask this question and call this guy and ask this thing and then call this reporter and tell him that I said this. It was a list, a laundry list of the things that he wanted me to do. The last letter I got from him, all it said was, please pray for me. That was it. That was the extent of the letter. Please pray for me. Can I tell you on a completely different topic? Sure. A headline that just excited me. It's coming out of the UFO trials. Uh, vets silenced over UFO. I love it. Keep your mouth shut. Army vets recount how they were told to stay quiet after spotting an alien craft in the Sinai Desert. Uh, I think in the I think, Sinai Desert. Yeah, and they were like, "No, I don't talk. Listen, don't talk about it." I think that is fantastic. I'm oh, excited for these headlines awesome. to be coming out. The other story that has been kind of on my radar for the past couple of uh, weeks now um, and that we are going to try to talk about relatively soon is this very strange and ongoing rash of hepatitis cases. Yeah, there was in, an awful picture in the Washington Post today oh, of, a yeah. little, of a little girl that was just yellow yeah. from hepatitis. It's, it's in healthy children. And it is around the world. It involves 450 children in 20 countries. It's 109 in the United States. 11 children have died, but they don't know what's causing it, right? Because hepatitis is just inflammation of the liver. Yes. And we have these different types that are caused by different viruses. But apparently it's, it's not any of these. They haven't been able. These have all been ruled out. These cases are also really severe. And yes. they don't know what's causing it. And of course, you Where know, in the world did this thing come from? You would think, you know, your mind would jump uh, to COVID. Yeah. Uh, but who knows? Right. I, I, I am not seeing anything. And there, there is nothing uh, saying so far that this is linked to COVID. Uh, they're looking into a link to dogs after UK investigators noted that 70 percent of the children came from dog owning families or had dog exposures. But that would also be like. Well, so, okay, well, what's new in dogs? Because yeah, we've had dogs right. for it's as changed. long as we have been, you know, humans as we know ourselves. Yes. Um, so that would be strange. But yeah, it's a, it's a mystery, but it's also, you know, the fact that it's affecting children and the fact that it's so severe, like you have kids needing liver transplants. Crazy. It's wild. We have a guest, but before we jump to him, I, I wanted you to, uh, speaking of dogs, I wanted you to just tell our listeners what you had uh, read right before we started the show. Oh, wait. Oh, yes. <laughs> the best headline. The best headline. Tennessee, couples find, Tennessee couple finds stray dog cuddled up next to them in bed. <laughs> Whose dog is this? Jimmy Johnson asked his wife. That's so funny. Yeah, apparently. They, they have two dogs and the dogs sleep in bed with them. And the, the wife got up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and when she went to get back in bed, she saw the dog and she's like, that's this not, is not my our dog. dog. Also, she said she said uh, she first started to think it wasn't her dog because their dogs don't usually sleep with their heads on the pillow. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, it's a it was a neighbor dog that uh, ran away ahead of a storm and must have like came in through a loose door. And the other dogs were like, ah, OK, yeah, we feel you. Come on oh in. Get out of God. the rain, buddy. Adorable. OK, well, former Clinton campaign attorney Michael Sussman's trial begins today in federal court here in Washington. The jury was seated yesterday. Sussman is being tried on a felony count, one felony count of lying to the FBI. Uh, you may recall that Sussman had called the FBI to alert them to the allegations contained in what later became known as the Steele dossier. 
But when he called to make the appointment to speak with the deputy FBI director, he said that he did not represent the Clinton campaign and that he was simply concerned about what he had learned as a citizen. Okay. In other news, the Supreme Court yesterday ruled six to three in favor of Senator Ted Cruz's challenge to federal limits on the use of post-election contributions to repay a candidate's loan to his campaign. I'm going to explain that. Uh, Writing for the majority, the court was split along ideological lines. Chief Justice John Roberts said that the government had not shown that the campaign finance law furthered any anti-corruption goal rather than the impermissible, this is what he called it, the impermissible objective of simply limiting the amount of money in politics. So we're going to talk about that with journalist and writer Daniel Lazar. Dan, welcome back. Uh, Thanks for having me, John. Thanks for doing this, Dan. Um, You're helping us out. Let's talk first about Sussman. I have to tell you, I've followed every detail of this uh, from the beginning, and I am still just as confused as I was when it started. There are are several things that I just simply don't understand. Sussman is a highly respected A-list attorney at a major international firm. He appears to have made a stupid mistake by lying to the FBI. So why go all the way to trial with this? Why not just try to negotiate a settlement from the very beginning and make this thing just go away? Well, Sussman's pleading uh, innocent, right? Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> so yeah. therefore, so therefore, the uh, that question is better posed to to him, I would imagine. I mean, I, if he says he made an innocent mistake, uh, a simple question of like, you no, know, so like. Uh, you know, getting his his um his his daily schedule, getting the details incorrect, so he sort of forgot whose um, whose dime he was who's he was working on, uh, and uh, and that's all it was. He says so. Therefore, he thinks that uh, that that Durham is you know making a big deal out of nothing, and he's yeah. and as an A list attorney, he is he is determined to to save his good name to show this is all you know much ado about nothing, and so he wants to uh. To um to go the 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 full length on this issue, I mean um uh, I think that it's I mean, my sense. I have no inside information now whatsoever, but my sense is that he is uh, he is the one who is um uh, aggressively pursuing this case because he wants to sh- prove his uh, his innocence. See, now that also, makes total sense to me. Does it matter that Sussman? It wasn't like he went in and they asked him and he said no instead of meaning to say yes. When he when he said I want to come in. You know, he wrote in a text message, I'm coming on my own. I'm not coming on behalf of a client. It's hard to, like, say that was a mistake. Although maybe, you, may, yes. maybe he could argue that that Hillary Clinton hadn't asked him to do it. Yeah. So in his own mind, he's not acting on behalf of the Clinton campaign. Well, he's yeah. outraged as a citizen that, that uh, Donald Trump was, you know, in the pocket of the Russian government. And he's also saying you guys should have, you guys should have known because you've known me for a long time and you know that I've been a a lawyer for these people for, for a long time. Yes, that's all, that's all part of the go of the back and forth. But the fact is the FBI was, you know, was transfixed by this allegation for a long time. It did real political damage to our political system. And, uh, and I, for one would like very much to get to the bottom of how it happened. 
I mean, I mean, uh, it's I, I don't I, I do I, I want I want to do the opposite of what the Russia the Russia Gators did. I don't want to spin a vast conspiracy out of a few out of a few questionable details, but I right. really do want to know you know how this this vast thing yeah. happened. Yeah, I mean for for you know for for three or four years. Depending on how you count count them, this completely dominated the news cycle, and the press was chasing one false lead after another oh, yeah. after another, and it was it was an amazing episode that 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 nearly toppled a presidency. Yeah. Now, whether you like that 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 president or not is another question, but you know, but presidency shouldn't be toppled in that way, I would think. So I want to know, you know, how did this crazy incident arise? And you know, arise. And and if Sussman was, if there's any question of Sussman misrepresenting himself, then I think it's, you know, I'm fascinated, you know, concerning how this trial will turn out. You know, a couple of years ago, maybe it's a little bit more than a couple of years ago. It's uh, three years ago. I went out on a date with a woman who is an attorney with the the Democratic National Committee, right? And um, this was this was all the, the rage. The the Steele dossier was out and it's it's all anybody wanted to talk about. And she said at dinner that night, she said with absolute definitiveness that Vladimir Putin called Donald Trump every day and gave him his operational orders for the yeah. day. Yeah. And and I said, come on now, come on. And she said, I'm serious. He is a paid agent of the Russian intelligence service. And this is Manchurian candidate kind of stuff. And the whole dinner went like this. My cousin had set us up. And so I called my cousin afterwards and I said, she's very nice, but she's nuts to believe this stuff. Well, you know, I came to realize, Dan, that that there were a lot of people in the Democratic Party that believed this stuff. They believed every word of the Steele dossier, every word of it. Uh, I mean, I, I'm fascinated by Sussman's uh, uh, client, uh, Joffe. Yes. I forgot. Yeah. And I, so here's a guy who is uh, apparently, seems to me, he's, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's uh, extremely successful in a very esoteric field. So therefore, I conclude he's a smart guy. Uh, it's a field that I know nothing about. Um, and he was the one who who originally tracked down the alleged Alpha Bank uh, connection. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I don't know if your listeners are aware of it, but are aware of it. Supposedly, Donald Trump had a secret server or secret secret uh, secret um, connection in the Trump Tower, <laughs> linking him with this politically well connected bank in yes. Moscow. So that was supposed to be the conduit from right. which all these, you know, all these high level messages were flashing back and forth as Vladimir Putin proceeded to take over the world, like you know, like Doctor Evil out of a, uh, you know, out of a Austin Powers film. Anyway, so um. Um, so he's a smart guy, and 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 they notice some kind of strange traffic, and from that they conclude that you know that that there's a, there's a secret link, you know, in in place. But you know, it just seems to me that they that that they were as smart as they were technologically, they were incredibly naive politically. Yeah. Um, that they have no idea how these things work, how the political system works, how messy and how terribly human. The political system 
is and how utterly implausible it would be that someone like Donald Trump, a messy, ill-disciplined guy who no one can can trust to stay on message for more than five minutes, the idea of this guy is somehow receiving secret communications from the from the from the Kremlin is so patently absurd. And that you know that was my attitude. That was your attitude as well at the time. And I and I think the skeptics were 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 proved correct a dozen times over. Yeah. Because all this all these tales turned out to be completely, you know, without any basis in fact. Yeah, that's right. So you know, so so I don't know that Durham strikes me as a super straight arrow. Uh, and if he can get to the bottom of how this happened, I think he's doing a great job and I really wish him well. So. <laughs> I want to ask you about this Supreme Court decision yesterday, too. Uh, it involves this obscure section of the McCain-Feingold campaign finance reform law. It had capped at $250,000 the amount of money that candidates could raise to pay back loans uh, to a campaign. In Cruz's last Senate race, he loaned himself $260,000 on purpose, $10,000 more than the limit, and then raised money to have the campaign reimburse him. So why, why is this so controversial? I mean, they've been doing this forever, right? Since the 50s. Yeah, but it's a, it's a transparent way of just making money. Uh, out of this whole business. I mean, yeah. essentially, it's personally profitable for Cruz to do this. And so he's a way of profiting off campaign contributions, as I understand it. And so therefore, you know, if, 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 so if a voter thinks he's donating to the, uh, to the, uh, the Cruz campaign, uh, that, may, that money may just you know, wind up paying for uh, Cruz's uh, backyard swimming pool. <laughs> Um, and uh, and that strikes me as hardly uh, a, a proper use. But then again, you know, I mean, uh, the Supreme Court's attitude seems to be seems to be caveat emptor. You know, you you, you contribute to the, to Cruz. You know, you guys are lying idiot. Right. And so therefore, you have to sort of you know you cross your fingers and hope the money is being is is going where he says it's going. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not. I, I hate to say the Supreme Court may be right. I really hate to say that <laughs> in this day and age. <laughs> but I, I, I do believe that the, that the that the field of federal of, uh, of election finances is, is very heavily re- regulated. It often leads to um, to sort of perverse uh, outcomes, uh, and that there could be an argument made for pairing back regulation to more reasonable uh uh limits mm-hmm. and that voters should just be aware of who they're you know who yeah. they're contributing to the the washington post said today that there is no issue before the supreme court that so clearly divides the left and the right as does campaign finance this goes back to the citizens united decision which they're still fighting about. Why do you think these campaign finance issues are so divisive? There doesn't really seem to be any room here for the two sides to negotiate. That's a, that's a really good question. Uh, I mean, I, I think that, first of all, I think liberals seem to see money as the root of all evil. 
um, and that they tend to believe that they can just clear up corruption, then all problems will, will go away. The trains will run on time. Global warming will be caught, will be cured. Uh, you know, different races will like you now will embrace one another and, mm-hmm. you know, and swear eternal friendship, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you just sort of clear out this corruptive, you know, this corrupt influence posed by money, then everything will, will be um, OK. Uh, that strikes me as like terribly naive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and. I just think that that the campaign finance law is very complex in this country because our political system is extremely complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and so therefore, uh, there's a lot of money coursing through the system. Uh, um, it cries out for some kind of common sense regulation. Uh, but um, our system is very good at generating discord. And so therefore <laughs> – the campaign contribution system uh, seems to be especially good in carrying out that function. Mm-hmm. So that's my own, that's my real my best guess. I want to ask you too about this feud that we've been reading about the last few days between Joe Biden and uh, Jeff Bezos. Bezos, of course, was until recently the richest man in the world. He owns Amazon. He founded Amazon. He owns the Washington Post and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, Biden has used Amazon over the last few months as a foil when talking about big corporations that don't pay what he thinks their fair share of taxes ought to be. And Biden has spoken out publicly um, in support of unionization efforts at Amazon. So Bezos tweeted this morning that inflation would be even worse if Biden's full infrastructure bill had passed. And he said that Biden should be brought before his own disinformation governance board for his tweets. Um, which he and then he said it should be renamed the non sequitur board. Um, is is this a is this a tempest in a teapot or is this a real policy debate that we're seeing here? I think it's a I think it's a real policy debate. I mean, I think it's maybe a little bit of both. I mean, it's just, it's very amusing. It is. I've enjoyed uh, it. And I think it's I think it's great to see them going on one another. Uh, uh, I mean, I mean, the, the the question of 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 unionization is of great concern to the uh, Democratic Party. Yeah. Because unions were once an extremely important component of the of the party, and as the unions have weakened over the years and virtually gone into eclipse, uh, the party has uh, has lost a major, uh, you know, uh, a major part of its superstructure. So, uh, so, so I can understand uh, uh, Biden saying that, and um, and of course, Amazon's an easy target target because a it pays low wages mm-hmm. and b it was until the meltdown about a couple of months ago uh you know uh seemingly unstoppable um so therefore yeah. uh you know it's a it's a uh you know it's like the clash is inevitable and i and the um biden disinformation board is a special <laughs> favorite of mine <laughs> i mean anybody who takes a swipe at that you know, has my, you know, I can't help but cheer them on, even if it was Jeff Bezos. Yeah. So here I have a, I've said nice things with the Supreme Court and Jeff Bezos. What is going on? Well, I anyway, have, so the, I have yeah. one more, one more question for you. You can say something nice about Project Veritas if you want. <laughs> <laughs> so Project Veritas, the right wing gotcha journalism outfit yesterday released a, a surreptitiously made video that, that they made over the course of like four different meetings. Um, it was a recording of a senior Twitter engineer 
saying that the company censors the right but not the left. It has an institutional bias against conservatives, and it does not believe in free speech. He said that employees at Twitter were worried about a takeover by Elon Musk, and they had revolted unsuccessfully against him. Uh, He added that there would be mass resignations if Musk's purchase takes place. So then my question to you is, does any of this matter? There are lots of different platforms you can go to if you don't like Twitter. Does it matter if Twitter has a left-leaning bias? Is that even true that it does? Is it true? Does it matter? And if it is true, should Twitter be more honest about it? Um, I, I, I do believe the Democrats have, have really gotten themselves in a real pickle over, pickle over this issue. Uh, I think the Democrats in the space of about a dozen years have gone from the party of free speech to the party of uh, – of censorship because it's it's you'll be better off if you if if we do it. I mean, I think it was in 2010 Hillary Clinton gave a speech about the internet, saying you know how you know how important it was to uh to the Western democratic uh oh, yeah. you know, drive. Yeah. And um you know and and you know everyone should be able to hop on board. There should be few you know as few barriers as possible. Uh you know and free speech should should reign and. And good ideas will drive out bad ideas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which I happen to believe, by the way. And um, um, and uh, but since then, there's there's little question that the Democratic Party has done a complete about face and is now saying the opposite. And, I, and I'm always find myself like, you know, just just taken with, you know, with these endless New York Times op eds in which one, you know, one writer after another will, will bemoan about what a toxic place mm-hmm. Twitter is or what a toxic place Facebook is, you know, or how toxic TikTok is. I've never been on TikTok. But, um, but uh, you know, I don't have the same experience because everyone's internet experience is different, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everyone's Facebook feed is different. Sure. Everyone's Twitter feed is different. And I don't see the toxicity. I get some good information. I get in some arguments. Mm-hmm. I tell some jokes, and then I, I exit and go about my business. It's a perfectly fine, you know, information server. So, so there's no doubt that Democrats have worked themselves up into a censorship frenzy, and there's no doubt it stems from RussiaGate. Yeah, I mean, just as they were chasing after shadows in right. RussiaGate. They're, they've been doing the same thing with the supposedly toxic atmosphere on on social media. Mm-hmm. So so um, so so yeah, I think that it, that clearly is true. I think the Democrats are have made fools of themselves. I think they will be punished for it in November. Uh, and I think you know the Project Veritas thing. I haven't seen the the clip, but I you know these things are always open to interpretation. Right. Uh, uh, so we can't be sure, even though, you know, we see it with our own two eyes and hear it with our own two ears. But um, but nonetheless, I wouldn't be surprised if some if some senior engineer is, you know, is, is talking, you know, through his hat about this and right. and sort of engaging in free form speculation and bearing his own personal prejudices. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if those prejudices aren't, you know, widely shared throughout the company. Mm-hmm. OK, we'll leave it there. That was the. Excuse me, I was going to choke. That was our friend Daniel Lazar who joined us. Uh, Where are you? Are you in Philly? No, I'm in New York. You're in New York. You joined us from New York. 
Dan is a, an author, a writer, commentator, journalist. Thanks for uh, thanks for jumping in at the last minute like that. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come right back with our final guest. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. There is a lot going on in politics today. Five states hold primary elections. They're in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Idaho, Oregon, and Kentucky. Pennsylvania, as we've been telling you for many weeks now, has the tightest, strangest, and most important races. In the gubernatorial race, the Democrats are almost certain to nominate popular state attorney general Josh Shapiro, who uh, announced this morning that he has uh, COVID. On the Republican side, though, it's very chaotic. The National Republican Party and most Pennsylvania County Party organizations endorsed former Representative Lou Barletta for governor. The state party didn't endorse anybody. And it muscled out of the race low-performing contenders. But then President Trump endorsed a loyalist, Doug Mastriano, a former military officer and a participant in the January 6th uh, riot. Republican Party activists are apoplectic that Mastriano can't win a general election, but they appear to be stuck with him. He's about 10 percentage points ahead of that race. In the Senate race, Trump endorsed Dr. Mehmet Oz, but his poll numbers are barely ahead of insurgent candidate Kathy Barnett, she of the anti-Muslim tweets and shady past. Politico today quoted Barnett as saying that she led three busloads of, quote, pissed off patriots, unquote, to Washington on January 6th so that they could have their 1776, whatever that means. National Republican activists believe that Barnett also has no chance of winning a general election. We're joined by Eugene Craig. Eugene is a Republican strategist, grassroots activist, and former vice chairman of the Maryland Republican Party. Welcome back, Eugene. It's been a long time. Appreciate it. I always love being on with my uh, political misfits uh, family here. I love it, and I love having these conversations with you. Uh, there's so much to ask you. Pennsylvania, of course, is the big news today. I want to start with that gubernatorial race. This really is a test of the strength of Donald Trump, isn't it? He doesn't seem to care. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a test. It's a test there. And look, for what it's worth, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll notch another W there for, for that, right? Yeah, he will. I think he will. He'll notch, an, he'll notch another W there. But you know, win for Trump is a loss for Pennsylvania Republicans. See, and that's what the state party is saying. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, look, look, I mean, look, look, the thing is this, right? Um, the Republican Party isn't growing, it's shrinking. And, you know, part of that shrinkage is that the louder contendants, um, you know, they, they have, they, they typically gain more, more power within a party, mm -hmm. but they lose, um, you know, they're going to losing races in a general election with, you know, horrible candidates that, you know, shouldn't have been nominated in the first place. So Doug Mishriano is going to get the nomination, and he's going to get blown up by Josh Shapiro in the fall. You know, one of the things that surprised that has surprised me so far among Republicans in Pennsylvania running for governor is that you've got 
you got a whole bunch of people running for that office. And, and by and large, they're all serious people, right? You've got Barletta, who's a former member of Congress, highly respected member of Congress. I, Melissa Hart used to be my congresswoman from, from uh, Western Pennsylvania. She was a serious, moderate Republican, serious, like potential leader in the House of Representatives. She's polling at 2%. I, I'm, I don't know what's happened in Pennsylvania in the Republican Party. It's, it's like it's undergoing this transformation that nobody saw coming. But the thing is this, it's not that nobody saw it coming. It's that, you know, you know they played footsie with it for so long. Mm. Um, and now that it's here, it's like, oh, my gosh, what do we do? And, you know, they're scrambling to, you know, try to prevent, you know, losses and being out of power. But it's like, no, you like, you know, you don't just get to play footsie with different things and then not, you know, deal with the consequences that come with that. You know, elections have consequences. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And that holds true in politics as well. So, you know, you guys spent the last four years, um, you know, the last six years now at this point, right? Um, you know, coding yeah. Trump, um, you know, alienating, you know, you, you, you know, folks that have been longtime Republicans that you know, put a lot of time, effort, and energy into the party. Um, and now, you know, you're like, oh man, what do we do now that we have like these Trump folks that are now, you know, getting the backing of Trump and you know, Trump and, you know, to him, all that matters is loyalty. I mean, the thing for, for him, what he's looking at is, okay, the governor is going to be, you know, the, you know, the governor, um, is going to have a level of control over the secretary of state of Pennsylvania. Right. So, right. Look, Good point. He's looking at 2024 with this race or whatever, you know, um, instead of like, you know, okay. You know, one, how do I actually get a governor elected, um, let alone a governor that is good for Pennsylvania? But, but you know, um, Pennsylvania Republicans, they, they, they know what they know. They know the situation um, and they know, like, you know, their 2016 was a blip for them. Right. You know, you're never right. going to have the president turn out like that, especially when Trump's you know on a ballot directly or by proxy. This Senate race in Pennsylvania is even more interesting to me. Uh, Dr. Oz is the only Senate candidate in America. I read this in the Hill today. He's the only Senate candidate in America whose numbers are inverted inside his own party. And what that means is 46% of Pennsylvania Republicans like him and 50% of Pennsylvania Republicans don't like him. He's ahead in the polls, but only by 27 to 24 over Kathy Barnett. What do you think about Dr. Oz's candidacy? Well, uh, there's a couple things. There's a couple things to unpack here, right? The people that have been crying anti-globalism are now 100% all in on somebody that, you know, literally votes in Turkish elections, but yeah. they vote in American elections. <laughs> right, right. The second thing is this. If his numbers, you know, his numbers being upside down, you know, they'll probably flip a little bit if he gets the nomination, but not that much. Um, and then the other thing is the thing is that, you know, with that, you know, that just means that people are going to either stay home or skip that ballot line when they go vote. Oh, interesting. You know, when they go vote, you know, that, that's what happens typically when you have a candidate like that. Um, but I also think that, you know, look, uh, McCormick is there. McCormick has an amazing mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, Kristen Davison and some other folks. And Kristen's a really good friend of mine. Um, mm. you know, um, you know, uh, she's you know, a really good team over there. So, you know, you can see, you, you can see, I mean, it's a three-way race right now. Yeah, it is. It's a three-way race. And I, I need to ask you about, uh, Barnett too. It, she's got a real shot today of squeezing past Oz and winning this nomination. Much of her past is 
a mystery, and her campaign won't answer simple questions that all the other Republican candidates have answered, like how long she was in the military or what college she graduated from. She just won't answer these questions. She tweeted two years ago that pedophilia was a prerequisite for being Muslim and then wouldn't take the tweet down. Uh, And then what just yesterday uh, she said that on January 6th, she led these patriots uh, to Washington to have their own 1776 moment, which sounds violent to me. What do you think we should expect to see from her as a candidate if she wins this uh, nomination? So you're going to see the wildest, craziest things. Um, <laughs> you know, and look, and the thing is this, right? You get, you get people in this conservative movement, this modern day conservative movement, this MAGA movement, right? that have made names and career of themselves seeing the wildest and craziest thing. It's like, all right, especially if you're like black or brown, you say the wild, crazy things, Fox puts you on, you know, and Newsmax will grab you, right. grab you and they give you all the airtime. But the thing is this, one, the internet lists forever and media lists forever. So you never shake those things. Uh, I mean, it's like, you know, okay, own up, just, you know, own up to the, I mean, you could tell that, you know, I always say you could tell when people have like real good staff around them. Because things like that, you should be able to spin to a degree, right? Like, all right, that's what I said at the time. I was being incendiary, da da da. Believe it. You know, uh, uh, let's keep it moving, right? But you know, she's leaning into that because she also knows that, like, her voting base likes that kind of stuff. You know, that that that's that's some of the beliefs that they hold. Um, and so the thing is that, you know, yeah, she has a really good chance of winning this. I believe that a hundred percent. Yeah, I do too. Okay, um, you know, she wins it. You know. Between a Mastriano and a, you know, you get a Mastriano and you get a, a Kathy Barnett at the top of the ticket. I fear for people that are like really, really good congressmen. I mean, amazing congressmen that like, you know, are empathetic to issues across the board, like Brian Fitzpatrick, you know, right. um, that down ballot. You know, we could lose a Brian Fitzpatrick with the two of them at the top of the ticket. And that's right. what I worry about. You know, you, you raise an important point, too. We, we've seen this kind of thing in the last 10 or 15 years in other states, states like Missouri, Delaware, Indiana, where people who are far more conservative than most of the citizens in their state win a primary election and then lose what should have been a winnable race in November. Uh, you know, Dick Luger, for example, in in Indiana, one of the most highly respected members of the United States Senate, and they just tossed him out. Um, it, it was because turnout was low and there was this insurgent uh, candidate. Um, it seems like history may be repeating itself in Pennsylvania. Let's say that Mastriano and Barnett win the win the their primaries uh, today for for governor and for Senate. Is there any chance that either one of them could actually win in November? No, there's no chance that either one of them could win in November. Mm. Barnett maybe could have a shot if she wasn't so super MAGA. Um, I mean, there's always a play to, for for black voters, but you know she's so tied into Trump and leans in there. And you know, I, I said to somebody in, in, in a back channel, I said, you know, they're like, yeah, you know, Oz is Trump's candidate, Trump's candidate. But I said, but she's the Trumpiest candidate. Um, and they're like, yeah, integrity matters. I said, integrity hasn't mattered to this party since 2015, since 2015, since 2015, 2016 primaries. Um, but you know that's playing out across the country. Like we have that we're we're we're, we're inching up against that situation potentially here in Maryland uh, with Dan Cox and Kelly Schultz. You know, um, you know, I haven't endorsed Kelly or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I will say that it should be a hundred times better for the party, a hundred times better for the state than Dan Cox ever would. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. and somebody you know somebody like Dan Cox that can't call out a Buffalo 
you know, mass shooter. I want to target black people and explicitly call it, you know, um, you know, white nationalism mm-hmm. and racism and, and, and talk about, you know, want to, you know, try to mix in, you know, CRT and call, talk about the vices yeah. in our schools. No, call it out for what it is, Dan Cox. Call it out for what's called out for what exactly it is. But the thing is this, he won't because he's a coward. And the issue is that he don't want to alienate, you know, the people that support the people that, you know, um, you know, you know, support, you know, and listen to Tucker and, 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 uh, and listen and then support that, uh, replacement support replacement theory. Yes. So, you know, um, you know, that's, that's, it's playing out across the country in a lot of different primaries and, you know, in Maryland, like I said, we may, we may be bumping up, I guess, here in Maryland, um, with, with Dan Cox, but, you know, look, I haven't, I haven't endorsed Kat, I haven't endorsed Kelly. Um, but, um, you know, I will say this Kelly Schultz would be a hundred times better than Dan Cox and, and, and the folks are going to do whatever they can to make sure that we don't end up with a Doug Mastiano. Um, here in Maryland, yeah. um, you know, Doug and Dan are close, you know, Dan, when, when Doug had that QAnon conference, Dan was there. Oh my God. Um, and so, um, you know, that, that's, that's, that's a biggie. I want to ask you a Maryland question, actually. Uh, Maryland's a, a pretty heavily democratic state and it has a Republican governor who's very popular, highly respected. Governor Hogan has made some noise, not a lot, but a little bit of noise about running for president in 2024. Um, he's talked about uh, pulling the party back to the center again. He's not been shy about criticizing Donald Trump. Do you think there's a chance that that could happen? Give us your thoughts on where well, a moderate Republican fits into uh, today's Republican Party. Well, I, I, I think it's going to be dependent upon what the primary calendar looks like, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that one of the things that very well benefit Governor Hogan is that, the, you know, the DNC is, 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 is shaking up their primary calendar. So yes. with a diverse state like a Maryland or like a California or New Jersey um, leading off the calendar or a couple of those states leading off the calendar actually representative of what the broad, broad spectrum of this country looks like. But I think Governor Hogan can very well have a shot at the presidency. And I think Governor Hogan would be an amazing president. I think Governor Hogan would be a president that, like, you know, really transformed this country the same way that like he's done a lot of good here in Maryland. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I, I was sitting back and I was having some conversations about this primary. And I said, listen, you know, there's some folks that, like, just hate Hogan. I'm like, could you imagine what, you know, this state would be like right now under the tenureship of Anthony Brown or Ben Jealous? Right. I said, you know, um, um, you know so, so the thing, I think Governor Hogan would be an amazing president. I'll have no problem supporting Governor Hogan for president. You know, somebody asked me, you know, oh, you know, what would be your uh, your your choice for president? I said, look, it could be Governor Hogan because I've seen what he did here in Blue Maryland. Yeah, elected by a bigger margin than what he did in 2014 when he was an unknown. Yes. Um. You know. You know. So that. You know. That. That. That's. You know. That's the deal there. But I also think that look. You know. You have some folks that are. Yeah, running in the vein of Hogan, um, like Kelly Schultz, like a Tannis Villanova running in Maryland five, like a Reba Hawkins running for U.S. Senate. Or even like a Colt Black running in Maryland six, which is now a toss-up district. Um, right. We have some opportunities here. So um, you know, the thing is that Hogan had laid Hogan laid out uh, Hogan has laid out a pathway. Um, you know, your your Governor Hogan's, your Charlie Baker's, your your Chris Christie's have laid out a pathway of what it looks like to actually run and govern from the center to a degree, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't mean there are any any they're not sufficiently they're sufficiently less conservative than, than other conservatives, no. But they also understand how what it means to run towards the voters and run towards the people that your, your citizens, which aren't necessarily, you know, a quarter of the, a quarter of the Republican party. So, um, you know, I think governor Hogan will make an amazing president. Um, and look, we got some great candidates like Reba Hawkins and, and Tannis Villanova and Colt Black here in Maryland that will really, really, um, that, that could do that could you know, help carry that torch, you know, along with Kelly Schultz. One last question for you. Uh, we, we talk a lot 
on the show about uh, Madison Cawthorn, uh, the first term congressman from Western North Carolina. He has gotten himself into a heap of trouble. But as Politico and The Hill and CNN and The Post all point out, it's a ruby red district, solidly Republican district, and all he needs to do to avoid a runoff is to win with at least 30 percent. What do you think is going to happen down there today? Well, the the thing is this, right? I think that, um, you know, I think he's probably going to pull that out, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll be shocked if he doesn't. But, you know, if it's up to me, get him up out of here, bro. Um, horrible representation for the party, horrible representation for, you know, what it means for like young conservatives and people that are under 35 that decide they want to run for office. I mean, like, you know, like, you know, if, if people that aren't actively in this and that aren't actively in this game don't understand what it, what, what it takes for somebody under 35, under 45 to run for office, to convince donors to support them, to convince party activists to support them. And then this clown gets elected and all you, and all you see is a running trail of of a misstep after misstep after misstep, yeah. you know, saying wild things. You know, I mean, everything from the org. I mean, you would have thought that, like, all right, you know, you bring a gun through, you know, TSA twice, right? Twice. Joel sent Joel Santana. You know, had a you know, loaded. Santana had a gun loaded. You know, mistakenly had a loaded gun in one of his one of his bags. Right? Legitimately forgot about it. Did two two, two three years in jail over it. I mean, Matt. Yeah. Hawthorne, as a member of Congress, knows the law. He knows the rules. And he and somebody that's an avid two-way advocate knows where his guns are all the time. I'm sorry, there's no excuse. And then you have a whole sex tape drop. I'm sorry. We, you know, we, we made the you know, Congress lady from California resign over less. Yes. Al Franken resigned over less. Have some dignity. Get up out of there. Get him up out of there. I'm not Mr. Like, oh, moral majority guy. You know, I'm not Mr. Judgy guy. Um, you know, but... But when it comes to you want to be a member of Congress, I mean, it's just misstep after misstep. I mean, I mean, the guy literally is driving without a driver's license. You do anybody else did that? They're getting arrested on the spot. Oh yeah, it's been charged. You know, so I mean, you know, we want to talk about you know uh, special treatment or you know special classes or anything like that. No, get him up out of here. So I hope I don't I don't I think North Carolina has a runoff system. I hope it goes to a runoff and then people are able to search for his opponent. But get him up out of here because he's a horrible representation of young Republicans. He's a horrible representation of conservatives. He's a horrible representation of leaders in this country. We're going to end it on that note. That was fun. Eugene Craig, thanks for joining us. Eugene's a Republican strategist, grassroots activist, and former vice chair of the Maryland Republican Party. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll come back with some final thoughts. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we've got a couple last headlines to share with you. This one is the least meaningful, but I thought you might get a kick out of it, John. So I guess a, a new SPAC has uh, come together to merge with Truth Social, right? To buy mm-hmm. Truth yes. Social. Yes. Uh, And so it had to make a public filing yesterday warning about Donald Trump's previous failed business ventures. Did you see this? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So they're like, look, okay, we've raised all this money. We're going to merge with True Social here, the True Social Group. 
but the SEC could, you know, be be aware. The SEC could still halt it. But here are some other things you should be concerned about. A number of companies associated with President Trump have filed for bankruptcy. And I had forgotten he tried to do Trump Shuttle, Trump University. That one got a lot of attention. Oh, yeah. Trump uh, stakes. Was, that was pretty scammy. Trump stakes. Trump mortgage. Can you aye, imagine? Aye, aye. And Trump vodka. Oh, boy. I don't like vodka to start with. The Trump vodka just sounds awful. And now a more serious story and one that maybe we, we will try to get into a little more later in the week. Um, the, the most Americans in 16 years were killed on highways last year. 43,000. I guess just under 43,000. I'm surprised the number's that high, especially since we were going through COVID and, you know, presumably there would have been a lot less traffic. Well, so it was more than 10% higher than in 2020. But 2020 was the real year when people were really at at home for any length of time, right? So then 2021, everybody's back on the roads, peeling around. But it is the, uh, the biggest increase year on year since the Highway Traffic Safety Administration began collecting data in 1975. Um, so, according to, remember who the Transportation Secretary is? I. Pete Buttigieg. That's Pete why Buttigieg. it's just funny. Like, oh, say, I, I guess he's been on paternity leave for a while, so we haven't heard from him. Right, Pete uh, Buttigieg. But he's saying there's a crisis on its roads. I mean, lots of people do die in the United States in, in car crashes. Yeah. I think that seems true. So, yeah. You know, I remember when um, Interstate 270 which um, which Take starts at the uh, Capitol Beltway and then goes up to uh, to Frederick, Maryland and beyond. It, it, yeah. In the 90s, they expanded it to 12 lanes. And so you're you're on four lanes and then you get to 270 and it goes to 12. And when they first open, tw- I drive on 270 like very often. Yeah. It's, are 12 lanes. It's 12. Including the two locals or the, the local lanes on the uh, side. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There's three and then there's and two local ones. When they first opened it, there were crashes, like serious crashes every day because people are all jammed up on the four lanes. And then they're like, oh, my God, it's 12 lanes. Which one should I pick? And then they crash into each other. They all look so great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah. Uh, if only if only we had better public transportation, John, yes. like some cool trains we could zip around in. Imagine even like a good intercity bus system. That's right. Yeah. I'd take it. If only. If only. I love taking the bus. I love public transportation. Yep. Uh, Florida also, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law a bill prohibiting protests in residential neighborhoods yes you're not allowed to protest in front of people's houses anymore this right seems to have been triggered by the protests in front of supreme court justices houses well newsflash <laughs> for ron DeSantis: virginia had the same exact law and it was declared unconstitutional because it's a violation of our freedom of speech right which includes freedom of assembly that's right so yeah we will see we will see how long that actually lasts we had another um Interesting Kamala Harris story. Well, not interesting, right? It's just sort of like a a peek into the life of Kamala Harris that we get every once in a while from these political journalists. And uh, one was about how she really wants to get out of D.C., but she can't. She can't. Because she has to keep coming back and casting these tie-breaking votes. (laughs) And and they're like, see, this is (laughs) is like keeping her from doing anything important that she has to come back and keep doing this. But also like... Seems like that's pretty important. Well, and it's your constitutional duty. That's the whole reason we have a vice president. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, it does seem it's, it's very unusual, right? I guess she has cast uh, the 
third most tie-breaking votes of all time. Wow. Right. And in, she's only in less been less than two years. Exactly. So she's so she is having to do it a lot. But wow. like that's very consequential. Yeah, it is. Very you know? consequential. The, Maybe the more Biden so than like ta- you know, given uh, yeah, given speech like a waste treatment put. facility. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Anyway, this isn't the most egregious Kamala Harris story. It just I just thought it was pretty funny. Uh, that they're like, she she wants to get away, but she has to just keep doing this very important thing that's her job to do. <clears throat> Weird. She ties up traffic every doggone day at DuPont Circle. At the same time, she's like a clock watcher, unless there's some vote in the Senate. You can set your watch on the fact that at six o'clock, Kamala Harris is going to be screeching up the really? Rock Creek Parkway. Yeah. You know what? I, I respect it. <laughs> I mean, no, Kamala Harris obviously is vice president. It's different. I respect people. I respect people doing their job, doing their shift. And then and going no home. more. Get she gets off the parkway at DuPont Circle at P Street and then cuts up 22nd to uh, to Massachusetts Avenue and then a left up to the vice president's residence. But it's like a 25 car motorcade every day. And of course, they stop all the traffic for five blocks around it. It's just a grand mess. I don't live near anybody important, and I love it, John. We're going to have to leave it there for today. Thanks to our guests and to our producers and engineers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>